author, writer, and teacher whose work explores the complexities of modern living. Writing credits include the libretto for The Extinctionist, an opera about a woman wondering about whether to have children because of climate change, and a play called The Clam, which, in her words, is about a wistful clam who comes out of his shell after seeing a therapist. We spoke about the nuances of creating art during the era of climate change and so much more. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, how are you feeling after yesterday when we heard Joe Biden won over Trump? I'm feeling uh, really relieved, like uh, like a lot of people. And, um, you know, particularly, I think, excited around, around climate. Um, I was listening to an interview with a, a climate journalist yesterday, and he he said that he thought Trump would be the last kind of fully climate denying president that we would have, and that this really closed the door on this era, and uh, that um, that this is becoming increasingly, you know, a, a bipartisan issue, which it of course should have been the whole time. Um, but I'm I'm excited about how far Biden has come so quickly, thanks to you know, movements like the Sunrise Movement and other grassroots organizations, um, how far and how ambitious his climate plan has come. Yeah, I was reading about how um, there might never be a climate denier president again, but there could be some presidents who try to like rewire renewable energy to sort of fit in with um, whatever they're doing with their capitalist projects and things like that, um, which is kind of scary. What are, um, I guess, what are your hopes and fears about climate change in the future? Um, well, my fear, I guess we'll start with that, is, is that, uh, is that we, obviously we make this planet unlivable for us and we take a lot of other species with us. Um, and I, I think my other fear is tied to my hope, which is that, um, it's a fear that we're never going to have this, this awakening that I hope we, we come to, which is that nature is not something outside over there um, that that is ours to destroy or usurp or uh, even save you know that nature is is us um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity here for a kind of spiritual awakening for people within that that context um, that climate you know gives us that opportunity so my fear is that we we won't come to that in time but my hope is that we do Absolutely. It does seem like there's sort of this awakening that we keep wanting to happen. It keeps it keeps getting put off. Um, did you do you feel like you had that awakening at any point, or was there anything that triggered it, or was it just kind of a lifelong journey? Certainly, it wasn't a lifelong journey. No, I was raised in in Manhattan, um, and I really had this idea that that nature was something you you visited sometimes, you know, at at a camp or on a hike. Um, and yet, um, I always had a really close identification with animals, and I always really had a sense of there being some kind of interconnection between um, our world and this sort of more than human world. Uh, and then I think after the birth of my daughter, almost three years ago. I went vegan when I was in my last month of the pregnancy, and I think there was something about that realization uh, of the animal in me, you know, because I think when you're in a, in a late stage of pregnancy, 
I felt at least more animal than I'd ever felt before and going through the birth process. And um, it put me more in touch with my own certainly mortality and, and, um, and animalness. And I think that that was the big awakening for me and, and feeling like I, I wanted to live in a way that was more, more in line with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting because it seems like a good place to pivot to one of your projects, The Extinctionist, which is a, an opera that you've been working on about the climate activist decision not to have children. Um, and it's interesting that in that show, the, the woman decides not to have a child, um, whereas it sounds like your awakening was kind of bound up in having a child. Um, so I guess how was writing, how was the experience of writing and working on that um, as you were sort of grappling with your own um, sort of opposite or related feelings about children and the environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote The Extinctionist as a play actually before I had a, a child and um, and it was certainly a question I was grappling with at the time. Is it is it moral to have children given what we're doing to the planet? Is it, uh, is it kind? And um, I, I, I decided to, to, to do it um, and, and to put my foot in the future in that particular way, um, which I can say has only made me more invested in it. But um, turning it into an opera has been interesting because it feels like, uh, it feels like an unanswerable question in a way. And, and it, The Extinctionist is really about this, uh, this need for control in a situation where you have no control and what is a person's uh, ability to have control over their own destiny when the planet is shifting so much all around them. So um, I can't say that there's any one conclusion that the, that the opera comes to, but it's really about that, that kind of paradox of, of trying to find footing as an activist um, when you have really no, no control over the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I- I resonate with a lot of what you said there. I think, um, yeah, my, like my climate awakening was sort of bound up in, in realizing the lack of separation from the earth, but also just uh, in being sort of inspired to act rather than accepting the pain of everything that was going on. Like you can just sort of sit in it and, and watch it happen, or you can act, but then once you decide to act, that's a whole other challenge where you almost feel like you have less control because of the, the size and scale. So um, yeah, all that is to say, I, uh, I think there's are really, really big and difficult questions to grapple with. Um, what were there any um, like challenges or specific roadblocks that you had to overcome while, while working on this? I think it's really easy to read it as a, as a polemic um, or as a kind of uh, a story about why people shouldn't have children. So I think I think I'm I'm trying to make sure that the libretto is uh, that the, the the message that I intend is coming through, which is really this is this is about um, fear of a loss of control and not prescriptively telling anybody what they should do. But I think anytime you get into climate as a storyteller, um, God, I've been trying to write a play about veganism for a long time, and it's it's really hard because these these are kind of issues that people assume you have a big agenda in writing it and people assume you're trying to you know shove some sort of uh, political ideology at them and and for I think for people who want to explore the kind of more philosophical questions of all of this that's really hard because audiences um 
hear one, you know, one aspect of it and kind of shut down to the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about how it just seems like any form of like shame or any dynamic that involves one person looking down on the other and trying to control them just uh, just never seems to create real lasting change. And I think that's been a big issue in the climate movement and a lot of other movements. Um, so yeah, how, how did you sort of, how were you able to overcome that in your writing? I think it's a, it's a matter of making the characters themselves very fallible and um, sometimes ridiculous um, and having comedy uh, and and hopefully having it be also entertaining. I mean, I, I, I'm the only person probably who views The Extinctionist as a comedy, <laughs> but I do, I see it as a kind of co- a comedy in, in, in the way that as you get older, Chekhov, you see why he's, he calls it, not that I'm comparing myself to Chekhov in any way, but you see why he calls his plays comedies. And I, when I was a, a teenager, I would read his plays and I would think these are all tragedies. But you see, I think as I gotten older, I see how this this kind of, this existing in the in, with this chaos around you and trying to find some kind of footing for yourself as a human being and some kind of purpose is, is, a, is the great comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading uh, old stories about like um, the creator as Coyote, uh, as kind of a jokester, um, uh, old indigenous stories from America and uh, or pre-America, and I think I think about that a lot. In that there's it might not be a linear good and evil, but it's like it, there's a lot of chaos, and I think that's what people relate with. So, um, but yeah, the whole um, the topic of the show is really interesting because I sort of I'm still in the place where I feel like I always told myself I would never have children because I was like I don't want to bring them into the world but then I've learned so much about how that whole idea is so flawed and I'm sure you you know a ton about it too and it's usually a way of just trying to control and shame um, like often poor communities, black and brown communities who are just having children and use way fewer resources than one billionaire. Um, so. I think that's kind of been an awakening as well, um, and I'm sure you grappled with that while while you're writing it too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's uh, it, I think that's another that's another way in which this character is fallible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if, if thinking about our choices, it's obviously important to think about individual actions, um, but I think that when we get obsessive about our own individual actions and lose sight of um, the fact that this is really something that needs to be put on corporations and corporate change, um, we all lose. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it seems like you've done some corporate confrontation um, in your work before as well. I see you, you wrote a play um, about Eunice Foote, the woman who discovers the greenhouse effect. Um, how was writing that and what was the process like um, of researching that because it's so disturbing, like the way that that played out. I'm I'm actually in the middle of that now. Um, I'm I'm in the middle of the second draft. Um, and yeah, Eunice Foote was a, a amateur scientist, uh, atmospheric scientist in the mid 19th century, who discovered in in 1856 what we now know as the greenhouse effect. Mm-hmm. Um, three years later, it was discovered again by an Irish physicist named John Tyndall, who 
you know, whose experiment kind of took off and he became known as the, the father of climate science. Um, and her experiment was actually lost until 2011 when um, this retired geologist in Tulsa found it in his basement in a book he bought on eBay. Um, so she's having this kind of renaissance, I think, as, as we start to see uh, a lot of, you know, female climate activists and female identified climate activists stepping to the front and uh, and really leading leading us, right? That this is uh, in, in some ways a, a woman's movement as well. Um, she's become a big figure, I think, for a lot of people, but it, it's, it's a sad story. Um, and it's, uh, it's also, it's also absurd in its own way. I mean, I, I, I'm really interested in this question of, of uh, ambition for legacy, you know, with this ticking time bomb of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, kind of following the story. Yeah, that, that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's so scary to look into that, that era of history when everybody knew. Um, I think there's like these hashtags, Exxon knew, that I've seen going around. Um, they all sort of knew and the science was there. Um, and it's like you have to wonder, the corporations pretty successfully shut it down, but also I think people didn't, didn't connect or realize maybe the scale of what was happening. And yeah, I think that's why it's really powerful to see people highlighting the connections um, and how this is like something we have to deal with now. It's not like an abstract, like save the nat- national parks thing. It's like everywhere, it's inside us. Uh, I, think, I think climate's really connected to mental health. Um, so yeah, sounds, sounds really interesting. Um, I guess I should ask, uh, I know you do a lot of different things, are involved in a lot of amazing fields. Could you give us a summary of the work that you do or like the couple fields that you're in? Yeah, I, I think I do. I do three things, almost uh, equally. So I've been an actor for um, about twenty years, uh, mostly in theater and also some television. Um, and I also write. That's a newer thing. And I'm also a, a speech and voice teacher. So I work with uh, mostly other actors, but also just you know lay people on um, dialects and diction, and also voice and breath. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah, I try to um, always interview people who whose work involves a lot of intersecting forces and interlocking forces, which is why this is kind of perfect. Um, I see you've written a bit about how your uh, your work in breathwork is related to environmentalism, which sounds so cool. Uh, can you talk a little more to that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the process now of getting certified to do breathwork, and there's a lot of things that fall under that category, I guess. Um, but this is really about, um, you know, that kind of heavy circular breathing that can lead to altered states and have a therapeutic effect on people. Um, And I really do see breath as an extension of environmentalism. I I think it's it's the most visceral way that we are in contact with our environment uh, every minute. I had this this experience during COVID. I don't know if you remember in the city, there was this kind of week where we knew it was all around us, but nobody was wearing masks yet. And I remember walking through Grand Central and having this feeling like my lungs were um, open to everybody else. <laughs> like they, I was taking into my body what everybody else was exhaling. And it was this, this terrifying feeling of being very vulnerable, but also an exhilarating feeling of being uh, very interconnected in a way I'd never quite experienced before, like w- within my own body. So, um, 
I think at its best, breathwork is a, a practice of reminding ourselves that we are interconnected with the environment and, and with each other. So cool. Um, and you've also, uh, you also seem to see connections between uh, spirituality and theater, which seems related as well. Um, really related. Yeah. I, I, and more and more as we go longer and longer without having theater, I don't know if, I mean, there's been some amazing, very ingenious plays on film, you know, and, and, and theater companies, I think really creating these, these incredible films out of zoom, you know, and out of, uh, actors in their living rooms. But what we miss is is sharing the breathing space with the actor, which I think is what really differentiates theater from any other medium. And they've done there's this amazing study to come out of the University of London, I think a year ago, um, where they they found that in a theater the the heartbeats of the audience actually synchronize, and um, they go up at the same time, they go down at the same time, and so if you think about that, the 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 audience kind of becoming one organism. Right. And um, that that also having an impact on the actor and the actor having an impact on them in that really visceral way. Um, It's an experience of physical and I think spiritual interconnection that you don't get through a screen, no matter how ingenious the format is. That's so interesting. I'm I'm reminded a lot throughout a lot of what you're saying of Joanna Macy's work that reconnects, um, which seems to be all about just like the first step to healing and also fighting climate change is, is reconnecting with the earth, which involves a lot of pain because there's a lot of pain um, in the planet. And as you grow more connected to the world around you, um, taking that on is is a lot of work, but that's the beginning of healing. Um, have you found that? Like, have you, um, do you follow Joanna Macy's work at all? A bit, yeah. There's a great book um, called Spiritual Ecology, the cry of the earth and she has she has a, an essay in there that i really love but i haven't read her her, her books on her own mm-hmm. yeah how did you how did you get involved in environmental activism like how where how did that journey go i think it, it came out of that decision um that decision to give up animal food um and then to to start really that that once i saw the the interconnection between my own actions and and what the effect they were having on the environment, um, which, of course, as I will state again, is not the main thing, right? That that uh, needs to happen for the environment, for people to change their diets and all of that. But um, I think it was that realization that um, there was still more that I could do, and that it had to be uh, a group effort, right? It couldn't just be something that I was doing with my own pocketbook or whatever it had to be it had to be mass action um so i got involved a bit with extinction rebellion in new york city um and that's been that's been the main group i've been with amazing and i've personally tried to write a lot i've tried to write a lot about climate um or like do creative projects about climate but it's very hard uh how how do you see climate intersecting with your artistic practice and like where where do you see their main intersections where do you find that relationship the most fruitful it's really hard isn't it because there's there's no good ending <laughs> there's no real tidy ending um to, to write a play about anything having to do with climate is is just really really challenging because it doesn't follow um the kind of storytelling structure that we're used to using 
I think the intersection for, for me between storytelling and climate is that we, it's sort of Paul Kingsnorth's idea that we need new stories. We need, or we need new, new kinds of myths as a culture because the one that we've had that I grew up with, I don't know about you, but that, that there was endless progress and that that had to do with technology and um, that, that we were separate from nature. All of that is a, is a story that we tell ourselves, right? And different cultures tell themselves very different stories. Um, so I think, I think storytellers can be part of, of that mm-hmm. change the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about our place in the world, um, the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about what progress looks like and um, shaping people's imaginations in a way, because if you can't really imagine it, you can't work toward it, right? So it's, I think it's storytellers' job to help people imagine what, what a better world could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than a narrative or a story that's shared across massive groups of people and that people kind of internalize as truth. Um, yeah, I've heard so much about uh, the importance of new stories uh, and everyone looking for new stories throughout all of this. Um, have you, what would a new story look like for you? Um, are there any like hallmarks of those new narratives that you've come to cling to? I'm sure a lot of people would answer by saying the overstory. I thought mm-hmm. that was just the most extraordinary book um, in the sense that you know, trees are in a, in a way characters in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, trees have a subjectivity uh, just as much as the people do, and um, and a history and a sense of time. And and yeah, that that's that's where I see it going. In that we we give nature more of a, a consciousness and see ourselves more in relationship to that consciousness as opposed to um, things in our environment. Um, I I changed my the the. I try to change the pronouns that I use for animals so that I'm only using animate pronouns, for instance. And that was this huge shift in my own thinking, right? So even an ant, and it's challenging. And I have a toddler, and she does the same. And um, but even like a you know a grasshopper or an ant or whatever, you you say they, or if you can tell the gender he or she, and it it really does change how you relate to that mm-hmm. that creature, you know. So I think I think um, working to change the way we talk about the more than human world is a, is a really good place to start. Yeah, I t- um, totally agree. I've, early in quarantine, I got really, really interested in mushrooms and the mycelium, um, pando and all of that, and just how they're really interesting metaphors for the, these really deep reciprocal connections that, yeah, I mean, it's easy to see the parallels between that and a global community or being part of a global ecosystem. So I think my theory is that the mycelium might have some of the answers to the stories that we need. Uh, and I think the overstory does a really good job of exploring that and sort of the deep roots that connect us. But the What were you reading? What was there a certain book? Um, well, there's a great documentary, Fantastic Fungi, uh, and yeah, a couple of different things like that. And it just, it just kept coming up, the, uh, the mycelium. So, and I know that... Uh, it's like spiritual ecology I was also studying too um and that seems that seems very related just the the net the idea of networks and there's such old ideas like old religions talk about sort of how we're all globally connected by God um and then we're all connected by the web nowadays so the pieces seem to be there it's just difficult it's difficult to move that into being I guess mm-hmm yeah, it's difficult when I think we don't have the language for it, and we, all of our structures are, 
built against it. I think the, the real opportunity with COVID, and COVID obviously brought uh, immense pain and suffering to not just people in my country, but all over the world. But there, I think the opportunity there is, is to really uh, wake up to the fact that we are, we are so interconnected and, and that, and, and interdependent on one another. I mean, that's not, it's not a new idea, but it's, um, it's something I think that's viscerally really come to the surface for me and seeing how our systems really aren't built to, um, to sustain that or support that. Mm -hmm. Not yet. Yeah, absolutely. And they are crumbling, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to one d quote in the opera description, which I thought was really, really beautiful. Um, it says the, it says the woman's body becomes the battlefield of our political anguish, conflicting desires, and individual responsibility. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this and about the sort of conflicting desires and individual responsibilities that you see I've both mapped onto the woman's body and just into the practice of anyone aware of, of climate and aware of, of our falling systems. Well, you're working with these really two, in, in a sense, very opposite parts of yourself. At least I, I find this, I'm, you know, I'm to keep climate change at the front of your mind all the time is really, really impossible in, in my experience. It's because the, the scope of time that you need to be thinking about is not the one that we're really, we seem to be built to live by. Um, so, you know, the, the desire to, you know, to, to do something in the short term that, that is satisfying versus thinking about how that's going to play out, you know, in a hundred years. Um, that's always the thing that I'm kind of grappling with in myself. And I, I feel like I kind of go from like, there's two perspectives. There's the, there's this kind of really zeroed in day-to-day -day life that I'm living. And then you can kind of go, go back and see the, this big picture. And, um, I find myself oscillating between those two. I don't, uh, or vacillating between those two. I don't, I don't stay in one or the other for, for as long as I'd like. Yeah, and I've, I've heard um, a lot of the challenge of environmental groups is sort of bridging that gap and bringing the urgency of the vastness of it all into the everyday. And I guess that's also also the challenge of artists. So thank you for for doing that work. And yeah, I mean, how do, how do you how do you think it. of doing that? How do you do that? Keeping how do you take the vastness of it and and make it something that people can think about. I mean, I think that um, I think it is something that immediately affects us. I think like community and being in being in organi organizations and organisms is really important in order to handle it. Like you won't be able to get anywhere by just trying to envision it all by yourself. Um, but if you see that many people are grappling and with it and working on it and connecting it to other issues, then that becomes more fruitful. But yeah, it is. Um, it is a challenge, but I do think that many, many more people are waking up and not giving up, um, but are, are waking up to the presence of what needs to be done now and the changes they need to happen now. Um, yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's, it's a difficult thing to conceptualize, but I've seen so much change just in the past like year in terms of how people talk about it, so. Yeah, me too, and I think the statistically, it, I read somewhere it's it's actually the most important thing you can do is talk about it 
and make it a normal thing to talk about. Um, that that just simply talking about it with your friends and family um, is a, is a way of normalizing you know normalizing it as a priority. Uh, I'm involved in a group called the Climate Actors, which is all just actors who care about climate change. And um, one of the leaders of that group says that probably 80%, 90% of actors really care about this, but none of them would think that it was that high because um, it's not something that people are really that public about. But I do think that that's, that's starting to change. I mean, we all know the feeling of being the, the, the person in the group when everybody's having a good time, <laughs> you know, or, or you're out. I mean, in The, in the Extinctionist, there's a scene where um, you know, the friend is talking about this, you know, the, her, her flight, cheap flight she got to Cancun and how cheap the airfare is now and all, like all these kind of flights she's taking around. And we've all been that friend who's sitting there kind of biting our <laughs> tongue. And I, I, I find it harder and harder to say, oh, great, that's so cool. You know, it's, you got the cheap, yeah, cheap, you go going for two days to fly. You know, I, um, but you sort of have to sometimes for, for social uh, stability or social, you know, your social life to not completely fall apart. So, um, I think talking about it is, is, is hopefully going to help us start to start to think about it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just talking about how, how connected it is with other, other forms of liberation, um, seem is also really less alienating and, um, yeah, more fruitful in, in my experience. So, yeah, well, um, this was so lovely. Are there any other questions or things you want to cover, projects you want to plug? Uh, I'm sure there's much more we could talk about. No, um, I think I think that's probably everything. Um, I guess we could plug this little play that I have on um, Playing on Air, which is a radio play podcast um, about a, a clam in therapy. <laughs> one of my one of my interests is, is writing about uh, writing about you know the sort of blur between human and animal, and so I, I wrote this play about a, a a clam who's heard that he's supposed to be happy, but he never has been, and um, <laughs> that's that's on playing on air now. People can listen to that. If it's 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 only a comedy. Oh, that sounds so cute. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of your work goes into animist ideas, which is mm-hmm. which is great. It's really important. Um, and I would, yeah, I would love to uh, love to witness a clam going to therapy for the first time. Honestly, <laughs> that sounds uh, that sounds adorable. Uh, but it's sad for the clam, but I'm glad that the clam's getting help. You know, <laughs> it turns out well for him. Actually, he has a revelation in therapy. Oh, we love it. Um, <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today and for for sharing all that. I know we just covered a lot of ground, but. Um, yeah, as you said, just the more we can talk and refine these types of stories and figure out how to how to reach people with them, I think hopefully the better. So, thank you so much, Eden. It's great to see you.